Welcome to the podcast of Sozo Church. For more information about Sozo, please visit sozosmtx.com. Just for a second. Let me, let me borrow that. Thank you, y'all. We love y'all. Y'all are awesome. Uh, well, we thought that we would do um, a special introduction today, and we don't normally do this, um, but we have a new member that's joining Sozo, and we just wanted to announce it today that November 30th, we will be expecting. <laughs> third lowry third lowry baby so coming soon (laughs) kitty wants it on his birthday we are really excited it's crazy because a lot of people before we knew we were pregnant a lot of people were saying hey you're pregnant right and we're like well I look pregnant sometimes when my posture is bad, but we did not think we were, but it turns out they were right and we were wrong. So um, really, really cool. Mac, who's one of our college leaders, uh, accidentally, so when we did the baby dedications, I kept saying, hey, there's something in the water, right? And so Mac actually started a rumor that we were pregnant, and then we told him the other day, and he said, oh, it turns out that it's actually true, that I started a rumor that was true. And we may have actually been pregnant then. We're not totally sure how all that lines up, but <laughs> we did not know it until last Saturday. We actually hadn't planned on telling you, um, but like all good news, it's really just hard to hold it in. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we're not Facebook officially pregnant or anything like that. So, um, but I don't even know what that means, but yeah, but you know, so we're really excited. Let me pray and we'll, we'll dig in uh, to talking about how much God loves us. Jesus, we love you, and we invite you, we welcome you, we acknowledge that you uh, are here, and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be our teacher this morning, so we open up our hearts and our minds to receive from you. Let us not be the same. We like who we are, but we're looking forward to who we're becoming. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're headed into um, kind of the, the Passion Week, and it would start today officially with, with Palm Sunday. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time on Palm Sunday. I think that is done a lot. But what I, I do want to talk about a little bit is the cross and what it means. Um, but first, I, I want to give you an analogy that I think will set the stage well. So imagine that you are uh, you're, you're back in school or you're in school, for those of you who are, and you've written a paper. And you think, hey, this is a really good paper. This is a groundbreaking paper. Like, this is excellent. Nobody's written a paper like this before. And so you show your friends before you turn it into your teacher or professor. And uh, they think, wow, this is an incredible paper. This paper is really, really good. You should think about getting this paper published. It's that good. And, and then you go in 
and you turn in your paper to your teacher or to your professor, and you're excited. You're a little bit nervous, but you're really excited. You're thinking, hey, I'm going to get uh, an incredible grade on this. This will make my class. I'm going to be doing great. And, and a few days go by, and you, you show up to class, and you get your paper back, and your paper says C on it. Who's right? You, your friends, or your professor? Your professor, right? Everybody, we agree? Your professor is the one that's right. And I, I think sometimes the way that we see ourselves, the, what we believe to be true about ourselves, is maybe from our own perspective or from our friend's perspective, but we often fail to see ourselves from God's perspective. And let me say this to you, that the only perspective that counts is God's perspective. And so when we begin to come into alignment with who God says we are, it changes the way that we live. It changes everything about us. And so I want to talk to you about what the cross means for who God says that you are. So go with me real quick to Luke chapter 22. We're going to jump around a few places, but stick on the same theme. I hope that's okay with you. And if not, it's okay with me. And I think that's all that matters. I'm the professor, that's right. <laughs> Let's see, we're going to be in Luke 22. I'm, I'm going to read just a little bit here. So this is at the, the Last Supper, and Lauren set this up really well. She explained that, so Jesus would have been at the house of Lazarus um, probably on um, Saturday night, which would have been just before um, the, the crucifixion, like six days or so before the crucifixion, and, and Mary would have washed his feet and given this extravagant gift, and then on Palm Sunday, he would have woken up. Their, their day started um, at nightfall, and so Sunday starts what, what we call Saturday night, so they would have, he would have woken up and he would have made this incredible entry, which would have been like any king going up to the throne would have done. They would have had an incredible parade. Everybody would have been excited. And so then Jesus goes um, and he spends time with, time with his disciples at what we call the Last Supper. And so we're going to talk about that just for a second. And then, um, or just in a second. And, and then he, he goes through everything that he went to to get to the cross. And I think what we fail to, to catch sometimes is what the cross means. It means so much, but one of the primary things was this prophetic act that Pilate did not know that he was doing. And he puts this plaque above Jesus on the cross, and it says, King of the Jews in three different languages. And there's Jesus with the crown of thorns on his head. And I believe that we so often miss that that moment is Jesus's coronation. And it's the coronation of a different type of kingdom, of a, of a kingdom whose king was so good that his rule looks like sacrifice. And so then he goes to the grave, and there he does incredible work. He defeats the enemy, triumphs over him, does it in such a way that he actually brings the captives out, and they see People, saints that were well known walking around because the power of the resurrection is that powerful that it brings dead things to life, brings dead bodies to life, dead dreams to life, dead lives to life. It brings life wherever it goes. And then what we see, but then we 
We often miss this. You see, there is a difference. We don't, we don't live in a monarchy, and so we miss this. There is a difference between a coronated king and an enthroned king. And, and what we miss is this. When we talk about the kingdom of God, some people say, is it, is it here, is it now, is it later? Let me say this first. God's kingdom has always been, because God has always been king. What Jesus was doing was bringing God's kingdom to earth so that he would be king on earth as he already was in heaven. And so what happened next is that Jesus, he, he preaches the gospel of the kingdom, which is the good news that the kingdom is here and is available. Jesus never said the kingdom is far off. He always said that the kingdom is here, it's now, it's in you, it's among you. What he was saying is this. Not that the kingdom would be already in its fullness here and now, but that the kingdom is being deposited in us through the new covenant so that it would grow to fill the whole earth. And so there's this progressive unveiling of the kingdom of God. But what Jesus does is, is he's basically announcing, hey, there is a new king in town, there's a new king enthroned, and it changes the way that everything happens. Everybody relates to each other. And so then Jesus does this. He ascends into heaven. And what he does there is that it says that he's actually enthroned. And so he is, and my picture of Jesus being enthroned in heaven has changed recently. What I used to think is that Jesus is just sitting on a throne all the time in heaven. But I had this realization that Jesus being enthroned does not mean that he's sitting on the throne all the time. Because a king can be enthroned and not be sitting on the throne but still be ruling and reigning. Does that make sense? And here's what's incredible that Ephesians 2 says, and we'll backtrack and, and unpack this. Ephesians 2 says that, that we're actually enthroned with Jesus. That you are enthroned with Jesus. And we begin to allow ourselves to come into alignment with that thought that it changes the way that we see ourselves in the world around us and the responsibility, the authority, and the power that we carry. That you're actually enthroned with Jesus. That we are one with him. And so Jesus, back to the Last Supper, Luke 22. They're starting, or they're picking up, they're, there's a tradition at the Last Supper that goes back to Passover. And so they're having this meal, and, and, and there's a way that you do it. And Jesus is following along quite well until he gets to this point. In verse 20, it says, In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant. Say, new covenant. In my blood, which was poured out for you. We've talked about covenant a lot. It's one of the themes that we have as a church family. Here's what covenant means. You probably already know what I'm going to say. It means that it is an agreement for the purpose of oneness. It's an agreement for the purpose of oneness. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am making a new way for us to be one. That there would be no separation between us, but that we would actually be united. That he is making a way through his blood, saying, hey, look, I want to be in you and you in me, and we'll be together, and there will be no separation between us. No separation between us. Sin no longer separating us. That's the way that I want to relate to you. Here's what his, his, his hearers would have heard. 
When they heard that phrase, new covenant, they would have automatically thought Jeremiah 33. And what Jeremiah 33 says is that I'm making a new covenant with you that it won't be like the last one that will be different. And under this covenant, oh, it's so good, y'all. Go with me to Jeremiah 33. Verse 32, it says, It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant though I was a husband to them. Think about the book of Hosea that kind of describes that whole, how all that turned out. Verse 33, This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me. That's what 1 John 2 talks about. That you would need that nobody would teach you because the spirit of God actually is living inside of you. It says no longer will they teach their neighbor say because they will know the Lord. That word know, we've talked about this before is the Hebrew word yada, and it means to intimately and experientially know as a husband knows his wife, to be one. From the least of the greatest. And here's, here's what I think is the part that we miss. It says, for I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. What we miss is this, is that the way of the new covenant is that God is not remembering our sins. That God is not remembering our sins. That he is not holding our sins against us. And Matthew this, captures this really well when he says this. He, he records Jesus' words at the Last Supper in this way. He says, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. You see, the rules, the terms, the vows of the new covenant are this. That God is not holding his, your sin against you. That God is not holding your sin against you. That he's not relating to us based on our own performance, but of the, on the performance of Jesus on the cross. So, when you blow it, there's no separation between you. You see, we've, we've developed this theology... And when I say the word theology, it's our way of thinking about God. It's not this necessarily academic thing that, that God, that he turns away from me when I sin. That he leaves me when I sin. That he, he, there's this distance now between us when I sin. And we, we've developed this thought life so that it, it creates this interesting dynamic with us and God that it actually is, is as if somehow the blood of Jesus was not enough and that we have to do something to earn our way back into God's relationship. Right? Like, like here's the pattern that I had as a young man. I, I was struggling with lust and it was messing up my life, my relationships. It was throwing me way off. But here's the pattern. Uh, I, I would fall into temptation, or I would, let me say it this way. That sounds like an accident. I would choose temptation. I would partner with it, right? I wasn't like a, a victim of temptation. Sometimes we make ourselves victims of temptation. 
but I, I would choose, and, and then I, I would like think, man, I, I, I can't talk to God. Like I, I, that, that's too easy. I've got to, I've got to like give it some time. I've got to, to you know, to do this and that. I've, I've got to take some steps in order to make myself right with God. And I was a slave to religion in my thinking. I, I, I was thinking that Jesus plus something else, something that I did, would make me right with God. It's, it's Jesus plus nothing. It's the cross was enough, and the way that God is relating to me is not as a servant based on my performance, but it's a son based on our relationship. And when I begin to relate to God that way, I recognize that there is no separation between us, that we are one, and that we are always divinely connected because of the work of Jesus on the cross. Here's what it does to the way that I think about sin. I have to change the way that I see sin. You see... An immature perspective of new covenant grace is this, that Jesus has covered my sin, he's not counting my sin against me so I can do whatever I want to do. That's foolish. That's foolish. Because I am divinely connected to God, that, that essentially we are married and connected. And so whatever I do, it's not that it doesn't hurt him, it still grieves him. Scripture's really clear on that. But he's, he's less grieved on my action, and he's more grieved on the deception that I'm under. And, and, and that it actually, that, that he's not leaving me. His, his spirit doesn't lift from me when I do something. Instead, I'm taking the spirit of God that is in me into that situation, and it grieves the heart of God. Just like you talking bad about somebody behind their back when you didn't know they're right behind your back. And it like hurts them and it grieves them because they recognize that, you, that you're, you're not what you said you were to them. And so what we have to understand is this, is that what Jesus was doing is he was establishing a new way of relating to humanity. That he was bringing us into oneness with him. Take time this week and read John 13 through 17. This is one of my very favorite portions of scripture, and it happened uh, right up before the cross. And, and basically the whole point of it is, is this. It ends in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, and it says this. This is eternal life in verse 3, to know God. See, what we've done is we've made the cross about sin. We have been so sin conscious and sin obsessed that we've made the cross about sin. The cross was never about sin. It was always about you and me. You see, God's issue was not about sin. His issue was you. And he wanted you. He wasn't angry with you. Scripture says again and again, Colossians 1, 21, um, Hebrews 9, 14. It talks about how we were alienated from God in our minds. The distance between God was never but on God's side, he was always after us. We've developed this idea of sin that God's like, he, he's just going to leave us if we sin, right? Well, what did God do when Adam and Eve sinned? He went right after them. You see, the, the, Adam and Eve's problem was that when they sinned, they became sin conscious. 
And in their sin consciousness, they wanted to hide and run from God. So they made their own covering, fig leaves, which is a sign of the law, essentially. It's saying it's self-righteousness. And they tried to hide because they had finally felt exposed. But God, God didn't care about their sin. He cared about them, and so he went chasing after them. And God has been chasing after us ever since. And, and he made a way in Jesus that we would be in right relationship with God, that he would not hold our sin against us. What happens oftentimes when we sin is that it still blemishes our consciences because we don't have a revelation of the goodness of God and the power of God for forgiveness. And so it, it, it obscures our thinking about God. It's, it's, as Steve would say, it's wrongheadedness about who God is. And when we recognize really how good God is, then all of a sudden we recognize that he's really after us, that he is really for us, that he is pursuing us wholeheartedly. My daughters never cease to be my daughters when they disobey. And the way that I respond to them when they disobey is not in anger. It's in love. Which means that the way that I treat them when they disobey is not punishment. Because I'm not angry with them. There is discipline involved because I want them to have an understanding of what it looks like to live rightly, to be in connection with God. And so when we begin to understand the radical grace that God offers us at the cross, it actually changes the way that we do relationship. Because I start not treating people based on the way they treat me, but I start treating people based on the way that God treats me. And so then I operate in radical forgiveness. It does not mean, though, that everybody is safe for you. Right? And so it doesn't mean that, that, that if you're in an abusive relationship that you stay in that place because you're just supposed to be forgiving. No, sometimes forgiveness looks like distance, but only when people aren't safe. And don't let your fear of confrontation be what causes distance. Sometimes we start assuming the worst about people and then we just create distance, again, alienated in our minds when we would just go and confront them and bring actually, com confrontation should always be about reconciliation, right? That I'm after, that's what Jesus was doing. He was after relationship, not the problem. Does that make sense? So Lauren and I, actually when we were engaged, I, I, I made this, I brought up this idea that we made an agreement to that, that we would see ourselves as united on everything and that any argument even between us is actually not between us but against us that that we would relate to each other that we would that that even when we argue and we fight which does happen from time to time um, that that our that our understanding would be hey there is a, a, an enemy trying to divide us and so we're going to stay united and so then she's never the problem and I'm never the problem, right? And maybe our thinking about the problem, but it's never us that's the problem. It's never, let me get away from her because she's messing me up. Does that make sense? And so when we, when we start to understand that what first or Second Corinthians 5 says is that God has reconciled us to him and then he's given us a ministry of reconciliation the cross changes the way not just that we relate to God but it changes the way that we do relationship that I begin to operate from this place of I have incredible forgiveness for people 
I've got a, a ton of grace for people. It does not mean that everybody um, is safe for me, but it does mean that I'm going to extend grace and forgiveness to them, and I'll draw, draw appropriate boundaries. Here's the thing, by the way, about boundaries. Some of you have been really offended by the language of boundaries. Others of you have used it offensively. <laughs> right? So, so my, my understanding of boundaries is not simply I'm protecting me from you. But it's actually, it's not healthy for you to treat me that way. And so I'm also protecting you from being enabled to be abusive. Does that make sense? It is actually not good for somebody else to be abusive to you. It's not healthy for them. Okay, so back to the cross. <laughs> the point of the cross was reconciliation. It was to deal with sin, but the point of the cross ultimately was you. It was, it was oneness, Archie. It was, it was to get us so connected to each other that we would never be separated from each other. And so we, we, we go back, though, to this alienation from God in our minds, right? And we've got to stop thinking, man, I'm alienated from God in my mind. That even when you blow it big, really big, royally, that God's not mad at you. And that he is so for you and connected to you. That you're still one with him. He didn't leave you. So, so we get this idea. A, a, a lot of that idea comes from Jesus' last words at the cross. And, and, and there's a few different recordings of the last words and, and different um, gospels. And, and, and so let me say this to you, by the way. Where the gospels don't say everything word for word the same actually points more to their authenticity than their weakness. Because the way that the person in that corner sees this room and the way that John over here sees this room and the way that I here see this room, although we're seeing the same room, we're seeing it differently from different vantages, right? And so Jesus says these words that are translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when we hear those words, we think, oh, God just couldn't handle to look at Jesus because he was on the cross and he was carrying all the sin of the world on the cross. And so we start developing this mindset that God just can't look at sin. He can't deal with us because of that. Here's the problem with that thinking is that Jesus is not only saying, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? He's actually saying an incredible amount much more. If I said to you, Jesus loves me, this I know, what would your response be? Right? So, so I, I said a phrase, but it cues a, a longer passage, right? A longer song, okay? So Jesus here is quoting Psalm 22. Go with me to Psalm 22. I think it is one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. And so he starts off by saying, my God, my God, why have thou... Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? I believe, Jesus, that, that one, there is no correlation in David's life to this passage. This is purely a prophetic passage, okay? So David wrote this song prophetically, declaring really what was going to happen at the cross. And so it sounds... Like this horrible thing of separation. But when we get further into it, we see that Jesus is 
or that David is describing almost everything that Jesus went through at the cross. They divide their garments among me. There were lot, there, there were, they cast lots for my clothing. All of that stuff is in the gospel stories of what happened to Jesus, and yet a thousand years before, David tells us what's going to happen. They say in verse 8, let the Lord rescue them, let he deliver them. That's the same words that are recorded in the gospels. Verse 17 of, uh, of Psalm 22, all my bones are on display. People stare and they gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them. They cast lots for them. All that stuff is what's going on. And yet, when we dig into it, verse 24 says this, For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. 2 Corinthians 5 makes it very clear that God was in Jesus reconciling the world to himself. Even at the cross, God's eyes, God was still in Jesus. We have developed a, a theology, and it's actually more akin, akin to Gnosticism than it is to biblical Christianity. That somehow there was this implosion of the Trinity at the cross, and they became separated, but they were always divinely connected. And God was always in Jesus reconciling the world to himself. And the point of that is this, is that God is also always in you. That he has not given up on you because of what you've done. And that he actually is divinely connected to you. Here's what's incredible. If we go to the very end of this. It says these words in verse 31. Take some time also and read all of Psalm 22. It says this, They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Some translations say this, declaring it is finished. Also Jesus' last words recorded in John at the cross. That Jesus has accomplished everything. That you have to do nothing to get back into relationship with him other than say yes. That you are in him and he is in you and it's only by faith and it is finished. The separation between us and God, finished. Our self-righteousness and our sin consciousness, finished. It is finished. It's done. Here's the beautiful thing about the Aramaic language that Jesus would have spoken. Is that the phrase that he would have said in Aramaic, which I'm not going to try to repeat, is a homonym. Say homonym. And a homonym is a word that you say that sounds the same but has different meanings. Like if I say the word to, it has three different meanings, right? T-O-T-O-O and T-W-O. They're homonyms. When Jesus says it is finished in Aramaic, the Aramaic homonym for that phrase, it is finished, is this phrase, my bride. And what Jesus is saying with his arms wide on the cross, he's saying the separation is done, that we're one. He's saying, my bride. 
Welcome into my life. I receive you and I accept you. And we are divinely connected. Never to be separated. And I, I think this changes the way that we read scripture. Because everywhere Jesus is in scripture, and he's all throughout scripture, Old Testament and New, you're one with him. There you are too. We think of the story of the prodigal son, right? And we think, well, I'm either the, the young son who, who runs away like crazy or the, the older son who, who's just religious and foolish, right? But I'm in Jesus. I'm neither. I'm in the Father. We think about the parable of the sower, right? And we think, what soil am I? Am I good soil? Am I rocky soil? Am I uh, soil that, that's that's hardened because people have walked on it? Uh, what soil am I? I'd like to suggest to you that you're not the soil. You're in Jesus. You're the sower. And you don't run out of seed. Again and again, when we, when we begin to understand that in Jesus we have a divine connection and that we are one with God, it changes the way that we even see ourselves. That I am in God, I'm always in Him, and I'm never separated from Him. Wherever He is, there I am. Where He's enthroned in the heavenlies, I'm already there. And everywhere I am, He is too. And so when I'm in front of you praying for you, it's not me, it's Jesus in me. That's what it means to have His name. That we start to see our lives as so divinely connected. And then it changes the way that we think about righteousness because I'm always in right relationship. And then the fruit of my life, the right action of my life, is, flows out of divine connection with God. I've got to start seeing myself in Jesus. I love this. My friend Bill Vanderbush was, was teaching on this last week, and he said that it changes the way that I see the five or the ten virgins waiting on the bride. Where do I put myself in that story? See, we tend to think, well, uh, am I, would I be one of the five virgins who are part of the wedding party who were so foolish that they didn't fill up their lamps before they got to the party? Or am I the ones that are overly prepared for the wedding party, but I'm so stingy that I won't share with the ones who don't have any oil? Right? And we put ourselves in that place where we start thinking, well, which one am I? I don't know. And we get into this like ridiculous self-analytical thing. Here's where you are in that story. You're the bride. You're the one that the, that the virgins are waiting on to show up. There's no separation between you. You're in Jesus and you are becoming one with him. When we begin to see that I am divinely connected with him, that I have been invited into relationship with God, Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17 was that we would be one even as he and the Father are one. That we have been invited into that place of the Trinity, divinely connected, never to be separated. It changes the way that I see, that I see myself and I see the world around me. Are you with me? It's just me. Okay, I'm excited. Here's our problem. Our problem is right here. Our problem is, is that while Jesus remembers our sins no more, let me, let me just clarify this because some, some of us have thought and taught that 
that God, like, he doesn't remember our sins until we get to the final judgment. And then he's going to pull up a whole reel of our life and our sins and embarrass us in front of everybody, right? He's not going to remember your sins anymore. John 16, go there with me real quick. Band, I promise I'm going to wrap up pretty soon so you guys could head on up here if you want to. John 16 talks about the work of the Holy Spirit. And it says this. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you. No. Hang on there with me. This is worth worth getting to. Man, it's like right in front of me and I can't. Oh, here we go. There we go. He says in verse 7, halfway through, he says, Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, he, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is primarily focused on the sin of unbelief. And where the Holy Spirit is convicting you is he's, he's convicting you to believe so that you can be in union with God. About righteousness, because I go to the Father, the Holy Spirit's role is to convict you that you are already in right standing with the Father. Because I'm going to the Father where you can be no longer. And about judgment, here's what the, Holy, the judgment that the Holy Spirit has come in to convict us of. Because the prince of the world now stands condemned. The work of God in our life, the role of the Holy Spirit is actually coming into our lives to, to convict us of our righteousness, that we are in right standing with God. And every problem that we have with sin comes from the place of not knowing that we are in right standing with God. And it is about trying to get what God already offers to us on our own, apart from Him, illegally, illegitimately. And so the problem that we have is this, is that it's in our minds that we somehow still believe that we're alienated from God in our minds. We still operate that way so often instead of seeing that we are divinely connected in Him. And one of the things that I believe that God is doing in, in the world now is that He is restoring our innocence to us. That He is giving us the, the ability to see ourselves the way that He sees us. That, that He's the professor and He's giving us actually the perfect grade, not a C. He's giving us the perfect grade. Righteous. 100% A plus, right standing with God. And what He wants is for us not to just see that as some sort of forensic legal idea that, yeah, I'm righteous, but I'm still actually a mess. No, the way that He sees us is the way that we really are. And I believe that He is releasing grace on us that we would see ourselves the same way that He does. One of my friends was saying it this way, that God wants to bring about a baptism of innocence. Now, I recognize this, that there is no place in Scripture where it says baptism of innocence. But here's what baptism means. Baptism means to be fully immersed and saturated to the extent that you become what you are saturated in. 
And I believe what God is doing is he is restoring innocence to our own minds that we would see ourselves and relate to ourselves the same way that God sees us. And so this morning, what I wanna pray for us, we're gonna have our ministry teams, they can pray more for you about this if, if you would like for them to. They'll pray that you'd be filled with the Holy Spirit. We're gonna give your life to Jesus. Now is a great time to do that. He loves you and doesn't wanna be disconnected from you any longer. If you need healing in your bodies, your minds, for other people, come forward in a minute, in a minute for prayer. But what I believe God wants to do is that he wants to radically restore innocence to us. That he wants us to recognize that we are forgiven people, that it is finished, and that we are his bride and that we are divinely connected. Amen? Would you stand with me? Our ministry team's coming forward in just a second. You can come forward for prayer. After the service is over, our prophetic teams will be out in the hallway if you would like to receive some prophetic ministry. It's really good and encouraging, not scary or discouraging like prophetic sometimes sounds. So let's make some declarations, all right? Jesus, thank you that you love me, that you've made your home in me, that you took all my sin, all my shame, all my guilt, all my condemnation, all my fear, on the cross. It's not mine. You've taken it from me. It's as far as the east is from the west. And so I receive that I am pure, that I am innocent, that I am in right standing with God, that you love me, that you're crazy about me, that we are divinely connected. There's no distance between me and you. Place your hand on your head, your hands on your head. And God, I just pray now just a release of innocence, God, that our minds, our thinking would come into alignment with the way that you see us, God, that we would see ourselves as innocent. And so I just say to the accuser, you have no standing in this place. You have no right to access in our minds by the blood of Jesus. And I speak radical purity over our minds, radical love over our minds. I just say in Jesus' name, those images and memories, those self-hatred thoughts, those, those dangerous places in our minds, they have to go in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord, that you are restoring innocence, that you declare us not guilty. Thank you that we get to be one with you. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. Amen.